Hey everyone, my name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Tuesday. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed your weekend, spending time with your family, your friends, watching the AT finals, getting ready for the for Thanksgiving as well. There's a little bit of news that we can get into today, into the news outside of the tennis world. I do want to discuss. Tyler, the creator's recent interview with Narwar, uh, it's a yearly tradition now for Tyler, the creator, to have a discussion with Narwar, and this year was no different. Uh, in a lot of ways, this is the hip-hop version of Billie Eilish's interviews with Vanity Fair, but in a less gayer way. Um, so yeah, Tyler, the creator, uh, spoke with Narwar, and at one bo- moment, or one point in the interview, uh, Tyler, the creator, actually spoke up on how musicians don't really speak on music anymore how artists don't really speak about the art or artists don't music artists don't really speak upon the albums that they truly enjoy and music as a whole instead they focus on sneaker shopping and deep throwing chicken wings and obviously his quote is a little bit more taken out of context i feel like what he was trying to say was a little bit more in line with wanting artists to really speak on the music and speak on the art that made them who they are today. And I think in a lot of ways, a lot of people sort of took it out of context. Uh, but Tyler, the creator actually did clarify his comments on his Instagram stories and through Twitter as well. And I think in the grand scheme of things with the context there, I feel like he does have a point where I do feel as if music artists don't really talk that much about the music. Uh, but at the same time, I think it would be weird if, if there were to be a comedian who released a special, who instead of trying to be funny during the press tour and press junket, all they did was talk about the importance of comedy. You know, I think in a lot of ways, things that apply to music shouldn't apply to comedy or shouldn't apply to stand-up. You know, so I, I do want to talk about the Tyler Creator Narwhart interview that dropped on Thursday because I thought it was very fun. I thought it was very fun, enjoyable. Uh, maybe not as, as memorable as say their last one where I think they were at Beat Street Records and you saw Tyler Crater just like digging through crates of The Source and Vibe and Double XL magazines. I don't think it was that memorable as that per se, but overall, really, really good interview. And Narwhal kills it as always. Uh, we can also discuss, in terms of news within the tennis world, if this was a good year for the ATP. You know, I think in a lot of ways, this was the final, final of the year. And I think now that we've had some time now to really think about this past year i i do want to ask has this been a good year for the atp because in a lot of ways i do think it has i i think in terms in terms of getting newer younger players to do well the circuit it's definitely done that i think if anything this has been the year to show the beauty or not the beauty but the the that, that was cringe, the way that I just did that. But if anything, I think this was a good year to showcase the the true potential of the young group of players, whether it's Yannick Sinner, Holger Runa, or Carlos Alcaraz. I think that this was the year to show that more than anything else. But at the same time, I think it's also been a downturn in, in other departments. I think the lack of Nadal playing in this year's ATP, I think that's been a crucial blow to the sport. Um I think the older Gen Z kids that are not kids, but older Gen Z players have not really shown their full potential, whether it's Zverev or Sitsapas or even that is a Medvedev. I, I think they haven't really shown that they belong in the same category or group of discussion with Sinner or Rune or 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 Alcaraz. You know, so again, I'm kind of conflicted on that, but I will talk about whether or not this was a good year for the ATP. And last but not least, I will discuss my weekly pick. So each and every week, I discuss, I, I or, or I give my positive thoughts on on a special, a film, uh, a book, sometimes an album, or in this case, an album that I really enjoy that I think you guys will enjoy as well. And this week, it is an album, um, and you can probably tell from the description box below if you're watching on YouTube. So that's what's in store for you for you guys today. But first, let's recap. The ATP final that occurred on Sunday between Yannick Sinner and Novak Djokovic. If you guys don't know, 
Yannick Sinner and Novak Djokovic played one against one another yesterday in Turin for the ATP final. Uh, final, that is. And Novak Djokovic beats Yannick Sinner 6-3, 6-3 in straight sets to capture his seventh ATP title. This was a fun, fun match. Um, earlier in the week, Yannick Sinner and Novak Djokovic played in the round robin in which Yannick Sinner beat Novak Djokovic 5-7, uh, sorry, Sorry, 7-5, Just a really good match for Yannick Sinner. And a lot of people were wondering as to whether or not Djokovic could be able to compete against Yannick Sinner and offer blowback or pushback to Yannick Sinner and his win that he had against him earlier in the week. And I think think in a lot of ways, Novak Djokovic was able to answer that to the T and then some. Um, So let's just go right into that first set because obviously it's easy to just give you the recap before the actual match, but I think it's even better to actually talk about the match. So let's get into that first set. So in the first set, Novak Djokovic was just absolutely killing Yannick Sinner on the serves. Um, I don't I don't think at any point Novak Djokovic allowed Yannick Sinner to win a point in the set. Maybe once or twice when he was serving, but that's about it. I mean, Novak Djokovic was just killing Yannick Sinner. On the serves. First serve, second serves, it did not matter. He was just killing Yannick Sinner in the serves. So let's get right, in, let's get right into uh, the first um, first set. So Sinner's ground serve goes long as Djokovic holds on love to make a one-love lead. As soon as Djokovic hit a four... Uh, this was a very interesting part because obviously this ATP final and for the next four or five years, two or three years actually, uh, the ATP final will be t- placed in Turin and Turin's in Italy. And as we all know, Yannick Center is Italian. So when Joker hit a forehand right into the net, the next game, the crowd erupted in support for Center, which was like, and this would be the running theme for the entire match. The noises that the audience and crowd would make in support of Yannick Center were just tenfold. It was just out of this world. It felt as if you were watching... A, a Seahawks game, or you're watching Trey Young at the Garden. It was like that big. It was that big. Um, so yeah, that was that was very interesting. Uh, Joker's retrieval. A center's drop shot goes wide. A center equalizes it to make it one one all. Uh, backhand return serve goes wide as Joker makes it two one. And overall, at this point in time, you're really seeing Djokovic put in the ground game and really show his his strength of serving. And I think that's what separated that's what separated between Djokovic and Sinner was that Djokovic was just more poised and serving and breaking serve that I don't think Yannick Sinner ever really had a foot foothold in this match. If that makes any sense, I, I felt like in a lot of ways Yannick Sinner was just playing catch up throughout this entire match, and it really started from the from the first ball toss in. It felt as if, whether it was in the first set or even the second set where Djokovic got that early break in that second set, it felt as if he was just playing catch-up. And you can't really play a final like that. If you want to play a final, you got to make sure that you put in your all, give it your all, succeed, do well, and come out swinging. And I don't feel like he really did that. Uh, great lob by Djokovic to make a 40-30 center leading. Obviously, you know, I had to include the lob. Anytime you see a lob in a match, especially in that given time, it's like, damn, that's just the thing of beauty. Just to see it just gracefully just drop into the backcourt. Seeing that ball just drop near the baseline where the opposing player just has no better option but just to watch. No better feeling in the world. Lobs are easily the best, or the most, they're easily the most beautiful shot to make in tennis. And I say that with tweeners involved. I say that with drop shots involved. Uh, lobs are the most beautiful shot in the tennis world. Uh, center's long forehand allows Joker to break and come back from 1540, 3 1 Joker. And, and obviously, that's where things sort of spiral for Center. That's where he realized, oh, Djokovic has this set in the bag, and if he plays his cards right, he has the second set played in, in the bag as well. Uh, that was when you realize, oh, this is not a continuation of the competitiveness of that first round robin match between the two of them. 
this is something different and this is going in Joker's direction. Um, Joker pressures Sinner to hit a backhand into the net as Joker takes a commanding 4-1 lead. Uh, Sinner holds in the next game to make a 4-2. Uh, Sinner's return, uh, return serve goes wide as Joker makes a 5-2. Uh, Ace by Sinner makes a 5-3. And Sinner's slice goes wide as Joker takes a set, 6-3. Overall, just a, a impressive set by Djokovic. They didn't really establish any rallies in this match. It never felt as if... Uh, I mean, obviously they did a few times, but not to the point where you're like, oh my God, this is like Djokovic, Alcaraz, and then one of the final. It wasn't like that at all. It was very, very, uh, had a very stop and start flow to it, you know, as as evidenced by Djokovic's impressive serves. It was mostly in Djokovic's direction. I mean, I'll just show you the, uh, the, the stats for that service game. So if you look at the first serve in, which is the percentage of first serves in, uh, 73% Djokovic, 64% Yannick Sinner. First serves won 88%, a whopping 88% for Novak Djokovic, 69% for Yannick Sinner, so not that bad. Second serves won. This was the key factor. 100% for Djokovic. Every second serve that Djokovic had in that first set, he won. Uh, 44% for, for Yannick Sinner. Um... And then if you look at second serves made for return serves uh, on the return, 100%. And then for center, 50%. Uh, rallies, um, you know, it was mostly center's direction, but it, those rallies were hard to establish, if at all. So, of course, uh, that that statistic is not that um, insightful to, to say because they didn't really play that many rallies to begin with. Uh, but anyways, overall, that was a really, really good first set. Stellar first set for Djokovic. And again, just amazing service game for Djokovic. That, I mean, that's the that's the only thing you can really take away from that first set is that it was just an amazing service game. Let's get right into that second set. Uh, so Sinner had some highlights in this set. You know, I mean, Sinner's ability to hold in that 16-minute game was unlike any other. Obviously, he had multiple times to hold serve. But the fact that he was able to... Take away a few break points from Djokovic and not let him convert. Obviously, that's a great sign. Uh, but constant errors uh, while holding serve got the better of him. And I think you saw that early in that first in that in that first game, that second set. You know, he was able Djokovic was able to break center early, and I think in a lot of ways, center had a hard time being able to capitalize off of that momentum that he had in that 16-minute game afterwards. You know, and I think that's what separates a center from a Djokovic is that experience, but also Djokovic's ability to capitalize off of the little mistakes that his opponents make. You know, and I think in a lot of ways, center may may have to rectify and remedy that situation. Otherwise, it will get worse. You know, so uh, let's get right into that second set. Let's get right into that second set. So center shakes forehand as Joker makes love thirty early in the set. Uh, center slice backhand allows Joker to rake one love, um, which was just, you know, a continuation of the success that we saw from Djokovic in that first set. And that's that's how you can really put it. Um, Joker's ace allows him to love on hold to make a two love. Center won on his first point of the set at 1530. Great serve by center gets on the board to make a 2-1 and end long game. Joker holds on love with another impressive service game. Uh, center slams it down to make a 3-2 changeover. Um, Joker holds a center forehand, goes 4-2. Uh, I think this is where you saw that long service game for center in which he held serve. Um, and yes, there were multiple times for center could have easily, easily closed it out sooner than, than, than intended to. But I thought that this was easily the best game in the entire match because of the fact that it was competitive and that both players while they didn't make mistakes obviously Djokovic did make several mistakes in this match um especially in this game I think there was one volley where he was near the net where he could have easily just just be able to get an advantage and you just he just wasn't able to he just wasn't able to close it out um but overall this was nice uh this was the mat, the the point in, in the set where you saw the audience really kick it into high gear and support a center, uh, the audience was not respectful at all to to Djokovic. I, I think that was that was a key part in this match where it was 
it never felt as if they were willing to give Djokovic his credit or due. Uh, and in a lot of ways, they tried to knock him out of his game. They tried to heckle him while he was trying to serve. It was not an ideal look for the Italians in this match. It, it just wasn't. I, I, I'm happy that the player that's in her face was not black. Otherwise, they'd be getting ready to chuck bananas at him. like Because that's what Italian fans do at sporting events. That's what Italians do at sporting events. They chuck bananas at at black players. It, it's, it's quite sad, but that's what they do. So I, that's all I can really say. I'm happy... I'm at least glad that it wasn't that. Otherwise, the result would be really, really bad. Um, but yeah, overall, um, that game was easily what they came to see. And if Sinner was able to just continue off of that effort, this match would have easily been taken to three sets. I don't think Sinner would have won in three sets, but I definitely do think that if he was able to continue off of that momentum he would be able to win that second set, go into that third set and make it competitive. But that just wasn't the case. Um, so let's get right into that game. Great forehand by center after an overhead by Joker to make it advantage center. I think now is one of many other deuces in this match. I think there were six or seven deuces, eight deuces in this match, in, in this game actually, that were, were like crazy. Uh, swing volley by center goes long as we go back to deuce for like, for the sixth or seventh time. Uh, center... Ace ends a 16-minute game as Sinner holds to make a 4-3, leading changeover. And again, this is one he could have easily, easily been able to continue off of that momentum. Um, he was not able to do that, but I, that, that was one moment in time where you, you could have seen that happen. Uh, another long volley by Joker makes it level 15. There were a string of long volleys by Joker that were just absolutely on Novak Djokovic-like, when you saw them happen, you're like, what happened? How did this occur? Now, obviously, this is the last match of the year, and and people are mentally checked out by then. But at some point or another, you got to be like, what's happening here? Like, why is this occurring in this time frame? Um, So, yeah, long volley by Joker makes a level 15. Great ace by Joker. Uh, to get out of a low 30 hole and make a 5-3. Again, that was when you saw Djokovic just end the match unofficially. I felt like that was when you saw Djokovic be able to take that match into his own, realize the mistakes that Sinner was making, and take advantage of it. And I think in a lot of ways you saw that by Djokovic. Uh, Djokovic being able to, ta- to get out of the level 30 hole was just a thing of beauty because I think that's when you saw the Italians really try to try and t- uh, take Djokovic out of his game. There were times where Djokovic was holding serve and they were trying to get into him, his head. There were times where they, were, where they would make long noises at him and overall it was just not an ideal look for, for the Italians. Just not an ideal look whatsoever. So the final game happens in the match, and Sinner is just not doing well. He's just not doing well. And at one point, um, at one point, uh, Sinner goes for a swing volley, and he could have easily just dumped it and gone for a nice slice volley to take it out and about and to not allow Djokovic to respond or return that volley. And he could have easily been able to close it out like that. But... There was a swing volley by Sinner in this in this game that went wide, and in a lot of ways it was very reminiscent of that one particular time in that long game, uh, sixteen minute game. I think it was at Deuce or Advantage. I think it was Deuce where Sinner went for a swing volley as again or before for the first time, and he wasn't able to connect on that swing volley. So, if anything, Sinner should have learned from that game and been able to make the right decision to not go for that swing volley because we saw him not get it on that first time. And I think in a lot of ways, that just shows you the inexperience of Yannick Sinner. And hopefully he's able to rectify it uh, in the next year or so. So, overall, swing volley by Sinner goes wide to make a 15-30. Djokovic leading uh, Sinner on championship point. Double faults. 
and Joker was able to break yet again in the set to make it 6-3. Um, overall, not an ideal way to go for DNX Center. Obviously, if you're DNX Center in that situation, if you know that you're going to miss both serves heading into it, or if you know that you're not, your confidence is shaken down to the point where you cannot uh, serve for your second serve, just go underhand. Go underhand. Pull a Medvedev against Seven Sitsipas in the French Open last year and underhand it on your final on your final point. You know, see what happens. You know, you may get Djokovic out of his game, out of his rocker. If you're able to do that, then you're looking at a deuce situation, or you're looking at a, at a situation where where it can be competitive. You know, and and again, I, you know who. If anything, I wished he could have just been able to hang in there because I really did think that Sinner had the capability to take it at three sets and make it competitive despite the obvious age factor and age issue and the lack of experience that Sinner had in this in this heading into this match. But overall, just a nice solid win for Novak Djokovic. There's not really much you can say besides that. It's just a nice solid win. Um... Hopefully, Djokovic can continue to bring that, especially in next in, in January, uh, when things get back into high gear, get kicked back into high gear, and we see um, the start of the Australian Open. Hopefully, Djokovic can still bring it then. Uh, but overall, this is a nice, well-needed break for tennis. It really is. Um, Djokovic, if anything, this was Djokovic's year. He won the Australian Open, won the French Open, uh, lost in Wimbledon, obviously not ideal. Um, but again, he lost to Carlos Alcaraz, which is a future goat in my opinion. And he was able to win at the U.S. Open and get his um, get his revenge on on Alcaraz, despite um, you know losing in the Wimbledon. And he was able to win the A2 final as well. Uh, so overall, uh, this has been a really impressive year uh, for Djokovic. I mean, I think that is. The biggest uh, thing that we can really mention, uh, uh, the final was to Medvedev, uh, not to, not to not to Alcaraz, but still, uh, he was able to come back from that loss to Medvedev and still compete at high level, which many people knew he could do. Uh, but there were still some detractors out there and some naysayers out there that were saying otherwise, which is quite dumb if you really think about it. Um, but overall, uh, I, this sort of transitions into my next topic well uh which is has this been a good year for the atp i think this is a loaded question i don't think it's just as simple as say yes or no um i I think in a lot of ways it has been a good year for the atp um we saw the continued success of novak djokovic we've seen the rise in younger players to have success and the majors and even into smaller tournaments we saw uh yannick center when the China, Vienna, Canadian, and Open Sud de France opens. Uh, and yes, they're not necessarily ATP 1000 events. These are. They're, they're not. Uh, I don't know why I sounded like... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, um, obviously these these events are not, say, premier events, right? These are not a thousand, one, ATP 1000 tournaments, right? They are not. Uh, but still, he's, he's able to find success in, in those tournaments, uh, we saw Yannick Sinner uh, succeed and do well as well uh, with his with his win at Wimbledon and uh, as well as other tournaments that happened over the year. Um, Holger Runa was also able to bring it as well. He, he succeeded in, in certain tournaments. And uh, I think I recap one tournament recently where Holger Rune uh, won at, which I have a short-term memory loss, so I don't know uh, which one is it, it is per se. I uh, can probably find it on my channel. Um, but yeah, it's been a pretty good year for those players. Um, you know, but I do think in a lot of ways, there have been a few cons to this year's ATP, ATP schedule and this year's ATP year in general. Uh, I feel like the lack of Nadal definitely did hurt, especially in the clay tournaments, the smaller clay tournaments. I felt as if there was a visible absence with Nadal gone. Uh, I feel like the French Open final could have been greatly benefited if Nadal was healthy and was able to play. Um, obviously, 
what happened last year in Wimbledon definitely sidelined him more than expected, uh, which is not an ideal sign. Um, but yeah, overall, the lack of Nadal definitely, I think, hurt in a lot of ways. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, the lack of Federer definitely hurt. Um, you could definitely feel during the U.S. Open in Wimbledon that his presence was greatly missed. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it will be very difficult for the ATP to find even a sliver of a chance to find a player that can be a great global ambassador to the game of tennis and to the sport of tennis like Federer was for his illustrious career, you know? Sorry, I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm not under the weather, but I'm, I'm dealing with some things with, with my nose. But anyways, uh, I, I think in a lot of ways, it will be very difficult for tennis in general to find the shoes to replicate Federer's. And I think with Federer being at Wimbledon, despite not playing, you can definitely tell that the audience craved Federer. You can definitely tell that the audience wanted Federer to be back when I think they were rolling at the red carpet for Federer and when Federer made some spots around Wimbledon and was shown at center courts. You know, you can really tell that the fans adore him, first and foremost, but second of all, second of all, uh, his presence is greatly and sorely missed. You know, in a lot of ways, when you think of class, when you think of royalty in tennis, when you think of players that were able to be spokespeople or spokespersons for the game and wear the sport of tennis like a badge of honor, no person comes to mind more than Roger Federer. You know, this guy was the epitome of class, of respect, and I, th I think in a lot of ways, if you think that Yannick Sinner or Hollis Alcaraz or Holger Runa would, be, would ever be able to fit that, that ability to carry tennis with class in the same way that, Djokovic, or that, that Federer did, uh, I think you are sorely mistaken. And that's not a diss to those players, by the way. I just think, in a lot of ways, Federer was able to be a global ambassador for the sport of tennis more so than any other person. You know, he was one of the first tennis players where it didn't really matter what your nationality was. All that mattered was seeing the great elite play that you saw Federer compete at every final Sunday. And you're like, oh, that's a player that I can get behind. That is a player that I can support and rally behind. And... Yeah, his lack of play or his his absence in this year's ATP year and in, in this year's ATP schedule, I think that that was in in, in the grand scheme of things uh, hurtful uh, to tennis. Uh, I really do think so. Uh, so yeah, overall, the absence has been at all for his injury and, and Federer due to, his, due to his retirement definitely hurt the ATP. But I also think. The older Gen Z players that are currently playing right now, I think that their lack of competitiveness and their and their inability to compete with the likes of, say, Holger Runa, Carlos Alcaraz, and Yannick Sinner, I think in a lot of ways hurts their standing in the ATP. You know, when you think about Sasha Zverev, and Stefan Tsitsipas, um, and their inability to compete and do well in majors. Obviously, Tsitsipas reached the final, the Australian Open final uh, this past year. Um, but after that, what has Tsitsipas done? You know, I think that's a question that Tsitsipas needs to answer and needs to work on. And with Zverev, I, there's something wrong with Zverev. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's his lower body injury that he suffered against Nadal last year in the French Open. I, I don't know what it is, per se. I really don't know. Ever since that injury, it felt as if there's been a lack of success on Zara's part. I feel like that injury changed him mentally, emotionally, physically. And it doesn't help that he also had some domestic abuse allegations that he under under his name as well uh, afterwards. Um, so I don't know what's happened to Zara. Obviously, he's still a top eight player. But still, as we all know, there is a difference between an Alcaraz and a Djokovic versus that of, say, a Zverev and a Tsitsipas. So, what good is top eight 
if one person has a dominant share of the rankings and success within that year for the ATP schedule? Like, what what good is a top eight if you can't even assert your dominance in that top eight? Um, so yeah, overall, Zverev um, has regressed greatly in this match and in 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 tennis, and I think. Ever since that injury that he sustained against Nadal, you can you can see it. Um, so yeah, Zverev not ideal. As I mentioned, with Tsitsipas, he lost to Joker in the Australian Open final and only won Los Cabos Open with Medvedev. Very similar results. Uh, lost to Djokovic in the U.S. Open final and won a few other tournaments. I would say around uh, in in this past year, but still, it, it's just not good enough. You know, I mean. With Alcaraz, regardless of how you may feel about Alcaraz, whether you like him, love him, hate him, detest him, at least he's shown that he can beat Djokovic in the big final. Um, these other players that I've mentioned, whether it's Tsitsipas or Zverev, or even Medvedev in the past year or so, um, have not been able to show that. You know, They just haven't been able to show that, and if anything... That is a detriment to that older crop of Gen Z players that have still have yet to be able to compete at a high level. Unlike, say, Rune, Sinner, and Alcross, where they have been able to do that. Uh, maybe more so Alcross than, say, Rune and Sinner, but I feel like the time is only taken for Rune and Sinner to be able to win a final and do so against elite competition like a Djokovic. Um, so yeah, overall, um, this has been, I feel like has this has been a good year for the ATP. There's been some pros, but there's also been some cons and in a lot of ways, I think tennis operates in a very similar level to say that of the NBA where you need stars, you need voices, you need players to drive the sport because in a lot of ways, these players, they're, they're not faces of an organization. Yes, they do sponsorship, sponsorships. Yes, uh, those sponsorships are often out of touch of the average individual that plays and watches tennis. But I think in a lot of ways, this is a player-driven sport. And I would love to see more individuality on in tennis. You know, I, I, I think that that is what's sorely missing is the individuality that tennis needs. You know, I think... What made so what made tennis so great to begin with is that you had these larger than life figures. You know, you had, you know, a Jimmy Connors. You had um, an Agassi. You know, who was able to wear these Nike Airtech Challenger twos to court and have these amazing, you know, styles of hair or hairstyles that we bring on court. You know, these wigs. Now we realize that they're wigs, not actually his hair. But back in the day, we thought that that was actually his hair. You know, you had John McEnroe where he would just complain to chair umpires all the time. And while these players do that, do the, do do that uh, from time to time, it's not to the same status as, say, McEnroe did back in the day. Um, you know, you saw Billie Jean King try and fight for women's right for women's equal pay in tennis, and and you know, see and try and educate people that women are able to compete at a high level just as men are and i think in a lot of ways she laid the groundwork for women's tennis today so i think when you think about tennis you know you think about these larger than life figures and if anything i think tennis needs that you know i mean i know there's been a lot of criticism slowly against curios and i i'm i'm part of that as well i'm not gonna lie i am a part of that uh but i think in a lot of ways when you see him on the commentary booth and when you see him commentate on these games, and when you see him break down the X's and O's, you're like, damn, like he actually does a pretty good job at this. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, tennis needs that. You know, tennis needs more figures like that. You know, more larger than life figures that are able to move the needle and get people talking and get, you know, the talking heads on first take or undisputed or however, however you get your news or information from, you know, Pat McAfee show. I think. Tennis will be greatly benefited if you just had a figure like that that could just move the national convo and move the needle to talk about tennis. You know, I think it would be great to have that. Um, a cult of personality figure, if you will. Uh, so, yeah, overall, I think tennis needs that. I think, if anything, you know, this just shows you that, you know, it is lacking that the lack of superstars that drive the national conversation to tennis is lacking 
the retirement of Roger Federer has definitely done damage to tennis. And we'll only realize that in the next few years to come. Uh, the overall retirement of Nadal, or sorry, the overall absence of Nadal because of his injuries um, did affect the clay season. And I, I don't want to hear any any blowback from anyone. I don't want anyone to say, oh, the clay season was great. It, it was good, but it could have been great if Nadal had been able to play if he didn't have those injuries. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like... I know the ATP schedule just wrapped, and this may be a topic that's a little too early, but you know, I, I do think it's important to at least discuss it because, you know, if we want to see tennis succeed and do well and thrive and get better ratings and get better numbers, you know, it all starts with having a retrospective or having a year in retrospect to discuss on these topics and these issues and, and, and discuss tennis as a whole. You know, was tennis, was this a good year for the ATP and was this a good year for tennis in general? It depends as to how you view it. You know, if you view it simply as, oh, interesting matches and interesting styles of play and, you know, fun, engaging matches. Yeah, sure. Totally. I mean, obviously that Djokovic Alcaraz um, Wimbledon final was pretty good. I mean, I'm not going to lie. That was a pretty good final. Uh, also, I personally believe that the Cincinnati Open final between Djokovic and Alcaraz is better. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but, you know, if you judge it based off that, sure, it was a good year for tennis. But if you judge it more so than say that, right, if you if you view tennis as a way to connect people to a sport, regardless of their caste, their creed, their race, or their religion, and when you see a notable downsize or downtick in the ratings or in the national buzz and conversations in regards to that um you know i mean i think that you should also judge it by that as well you know so overall has this been a good year for the atp yes in terms of matches yes and matches played yes in terms of nice storylines that happened yes obviously to see the success the the continued success of novak Djokovic, absolutely um, but at the same time, there have been some certain things that have been missing and it's tough to not acknowledge it. It's tough to not acknowledge it. So yeah, overall, those are my thoughts on whether or not this was a good year for the ATP. Well, let's get into news outside of tennis. Obviously, I don't really want to talk about politics per se. Uh, I, I, the, the jury is still out. The verdict is still out as to whether or not I will film a podcast Wednesday because obviously uh, that is the day before Thanksgiving. And I feel like in a lot of ways, there's just a lack of stories. The tennis season just ended. So there's no reason to really talk about tennis in the next in the next pod. So I'm only relegated to say that of say pop culture topics or uh, political topics. And for me personally, I, I don't want to spend another podcast talking about you know izzy and pally you know i don't want to talk about i don't, I don't want another uh podcast talking about the middle east again because i just don't really have that much investment in it as much as i thought i did so anyways this probably will be the last podcast until the one we until the one that i released after thanksgiving break so enjoy it <laughs> enjoy it please enjoy it uh so yeah let's talk about news outside of tennis this Piqued my interest on Thursday when I saw the interview, but it's best to uh, talk about it again. So, Tyler, the creator, uh, recently appeared on Nardwar for the fourth or fifth time, I would say, and spoke up on the fact that music artists aren't really talking about their music in interviews anymore and don't really talk about the things that inspire them anymore. Instead, they're just focused on being on sneaker shopping and deep-throwing chicken wings, as Tyler, the creator, would put it. Uh, obviously, these these quotes and uh, comments were taken out of context, and Tyler Crater would clarify his remarks on his Instagram stories. Um, but overall, that's the main reason as to why Tyler Crater is such a point of conversation for the past few days is because he sort of dissed sneaker shopping and hot ones. Um, which let me just pull up the quote here, so I don't want to take him out of context anymore. But this is from Hip Hop DX. Uh, music is my favorite thing, and I, I could talk about it all day, Tyler began. But we're at a point where a musician who you know for music is being interviewed on a platform about music 
talking in detail about music, his passion, what he's known for, and people are like, why does he keep, why does he keep doing that? But you know, if I was on here gossiping or talking about so-and-so who got beef, then people will feed into it. And it's like, no, we need to get back to talking about music. He continued, we need to stop fucking going on sneaker shopping or fucking deep-throwing hot wings for an hour. Talk about your album. Talk about music. Talk about 15 songs that you guys have spent time to get mixed and mastered and put your heart into and produced and did all these things. And then when the album comes out and it sells two copies, everyone's confused. But it's like, they don't want to talk about the music or the album. They'd rather fucking go eat chicken wings and sneaker shopping. Um, all right, so here's the, here's the thing. Uh, obviously, Tyler, the creator, would uh, offer his uh, clarifiers and marks. Uh, but we'll, I'll just look at the 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 quote in, in general. I, I think in a lot of ways he is right. Uh, that being said, I do think Sean Evans does do a great job at, say, interviewing his, his uh, guest and tries to get the best of, of their guest. I, I mean, if you listen to Sean Evans interview Justin Timberlake, I think one of the final questions was, how do you rank your discography? And I think Justin put Future Sex Love Sounds as number one. I'm pretty sure he put Future Sex Love Sounds as number one, and as he should. That's a great album. To this day, I mean, Timberland killed on the production. Um, I think that was like the one album of his where Timberland did all of his beats. Where if you listen to Justified, I think all of the beats, all the instrumentals were done by the Neptunes besides Crimea River. And because of Crimea Crimea River, uh, the executives at Jive Records or Arista, whichever record label he was on at that time, Justin Timberlake was on at the time, uh, they actually just told him to just work with Timberland for the next album. So that's where he got all these sort of, you know, Michael Jackson-inspired beats from and, and these just amazing instrumentals that Timberland provided for Justin. Just amazing. Um, but anyways, uh, that's what I learned from Hot Ones. And I think if, if it wasn't for Sean Evans and his ability to ask interesting questions, I don't think we would have gotten that. So I think in a lot of ways, and we'll as we will read from the Instagram story that Tyler the Creator posted, um, he, it wasn't really a diss. So let's let's read the uh, post that he wrote on Instagram. In the interview, I shared a thought about the lack of journalism and music artists that suddenly speak about the music and only gossip, etc., and used hot ones as one of the two examples. It comes off as having such it comes off as having so much disdain towards the show, which I don't. But really, it was to be used as a broader example that popped in my head while trying to make the point. I could have said one of the podcast outlets that really pushes the more negative stuff, but in the moment, I didn't. So, Sean, you didn't really deserve the energy that comes off. Wasn't my intention at all. Although deep-throwing chicken sounds hilarious to me, I am highly opinionated and outspoken, so it comes off as my usual complaining. Like everyone else does, uh, mine just gets shared more than the regular poster comment, even even if most of the video is me giving praise and showing gratitude to a multitude of things, that's not what's going to get shared or spoken about. This will most likely get lost while the clip continues to get tossed around, but at least a few will see this. Won't change much since it's out, but yeah. Really wish I used a different example. You seem like a sweet old lady. I think that's referring to Sean, Sean Evans. Um, and by the way, Sean Evans did uh, res- respond back to Tyler where he said, Open availability. Uh, open interview, uh, open request for you to be on the show. Uh, I'm down to have you on. Uh, nothing but love. Something along the lines of that. And honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if Tyler the Creator appeared on the show sometime in the next three or four months. I think that you got to strike while the iron is hot. You got to make sure that you know people are still talking about you while they still can. Not that Tyler the Creator needs it, but I'm still saying that I think it's good to strike while the iron is hot. Get people to watch the show. Uh, as we all know, Tyler the Creator is a fan of the show. I think on his alternative account, I think Scum Flower Boy, Scum Fuck Flower Boy, uh, he had like a, a picture of Shaq drinking milk on the show, which shows you that he is a fan of the show um, and has heard about it. Um, so overall, I, I think it wasn't that much of a diss. The sneaker shopping thing, I'm pretty sure is a diss because, as, as I mean... I don't hate the show per se, but at the same time, like I will admit that it is, it is, it is a weird concept for like people to like buy sneakers on a show and then film themselves getting caught at the register buying sneakers. Like it is a weird concept. 
and every time I watch a video, I'm like, why am I watching this video? Like, I don't hate sneaker shopping. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to say that I hate it. Joe Lapuma, if you're out there, get me on the show, okay? Get me on the show, Joe. Um, I'm not a name. I'm not. I'm not. You know, Steve O. I'm not Johnny Knoxville. Um, but I will. I'm down to be on the show. I'm, I'm down to buy some overpriced sneakers that were made in a sweatshop by a Chinese kid. You know, I'm down to do that. Um, so yeah, have me on the show. Uh, but it is a weird concept when you see like people like spend like northwards of like three or four grand on a pair of of Ben and Jerry's Dunks, even though they were made in the same sweatshop that a Starburger was made at. You know. Maybe the materials are different. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. But I do find it odd to see people spend their own hard-earned money for, like, sneakers that will fall apart in, like, the next few months if they, keep, if you, if they continue to wear it. Yes, I know there's the whole sneaker-flipping game. And I understand that in a lot of ways you can make a profit if you sell a sneaker two, three years after you bought it at market price. But man, man, oh man, oh man, is it a weird concept to like see like artists buy sneakers and, and not really talk about their music like that in that kind of way or shape or form. Um, but in a lot of ways, one could argue that sneakers play an immense role in a person's lyrics. And uh, I mean, if you listen to the games, Hate It or Love It, you, you know, there's a, there's a, a lyric in there where it's like, I'd kill you to get like a pair of Air Max 95s, something along the lines of that. And then it heads into the chorus. But um, I remember that lyric. I'm like, oh, that, that really explains a lot, you know, about the game's personal life and his background and how he came to be. And, you know, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, shoes do a great job at, you know, really telling the story in a lot of ways of of, of hip hop, of, of, of guys. I, I mean... I think this is like a joke that a lot of people have ran by, but, you know, I don't think women understand how important sneakers are for men. Like, I really don't think, I don't, I don't think women understand how important sneakers are for men. I really don't think so. You know, um, I remember I I bought like a pair of Kobe fives back in the seventh grade. And I remember that was like the day where I'm like, oh, like, I, I, like people are like noticing me for the first time in, in middle school. Like that's when I realized, oh, sneakers are more important than just like what you wear, you know. But, um, anyways, getting back into the, into this conversation with Tyler, um, yeah, I think Tyler will be on Hot Ones. I mean, I don't think he'll be on sneaker shopping because I think that is a diss, which really doesn't make any sense because Tyler the Creator is known for the shoes that he wears. Um, you know, he used to wear what vans and, you know, all those old school vans because he was a big, you know, skater back in the day. Still, I mean, he still is somewhat of a skater, but he still, but it's mostly skater aesthetics. Back in the day, back with Bastard and Goblin, Wolf, you know, he was more known for skating. And, you know, if anything, Tyler the Creator was known for bringing Supreme into the forefront. I mean, he is the guy that's credited for Supreme and, and for. Um, the success that Supreme found in the 2010s. I don't know why I'm talking about this, but anyways, Tyler Crater, I think he's right in this. I, I think he's right in this regard and in terms of artists not really talking about the music. I don't know Hot Ones was the best example per se. I, even, he would, he, even he admits to that. But, you know, I mean, there are times where you watch like hip-hop podcasts out there where you're like you have an artist there and they barely talk about their own albums that they're there to talk about and instead they're they talk about like their escapades with diddy and then you know uh the the cars that they blew up with diddy you know <laughs> i mean that's what they talk about nowadays that's what artists talk about you know uh they don't really talk about you know the the the, the process that made the album the album they don't talk about you know the the miscues the mistrials the 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 things that blew up in their face while crafting an album and i'm not saying that all artists have to do that you know I mean, if you're a comedian and if you spend an hour talking about the process to write the material for your special, I don't necessarily hate on it, but it would be greatly beneficial if you would instead be funny, right? I don't think that this really applies for every art form out there, right? If you're a comedian and you have a special out, it would benefit you greatly if you were to be funny in those interviews and press junkets instead of just talking about the special, you know? I mean, obviously make it a point to talk about the special and redirect people to your special, but also make it a point to 
try and find the humor in the situations that you're in, you know? So yeah, I don't think that, that this applies to every person in the arts per se, but I think if you're a musician or a music artist, definitely, definitely um, talk about the music, you know? Because if anything, hearing stories about people in the studio working and crafting a song from beginning to end in the span of four or five hours, to me, that is a great story. And I think more people should have those stories. I mean, if you if you watch Jay-Z's Fate to Black documentary, which documents his supposed retirement from hip-hop and the final moments of his career with the Black Album and his time in the studio with producers such as Rick Rubin and the Neptunes, or Pharrell Williams, that is, um, Kanye, Timberland. And some of those moments in the studio where Jay-Z is just talking to the producers and just going off the cuff, talking about, just rapping. I mean, that's some of the best footage you'll ever see. I mean, I love that documentary. I think that doc that documentary is great from beginning to end. Uh, and by the way, happy 20 years to Jay-Z's The Black Album. Uh, I, I kind of wanted to talk about it uh, for this for this podcast. But anyways, happy 20 years to Jay-Z's The Black Album. It's still my favorite Jay-Z album to this day. So many great songs. Lucifer, Allure, uh, Dirt Off Your Shoulder, 99 Problems. I mean, this entire album, from, from cover to cover, from the front cover to the back cover, great. I love every song off of this album. I really do. Even... even um, Cedric the Entertainer's part. I thought that was hilarious. Cedric the Entertainer is a hilarious comedian. Uh, and obviously, one of the best uh, sets on Kings of Comedy. Uh, easily, easily. Um, but yeah, happy 20 years to Jay-Z's The Black Album. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, music and music artists should talk about the music. You know, if they are really proud of the things that they make, then talk about it. You know, there's nothing wrong with talking about it. I think, in a lot of ways, I do think that hip-hop podcasts nowadays don't really do a good job enough of talking about the music especially artists on these platforms you know i don't want to name any names but there are times where you're like is this an interview or is this just like a hang like when you watch certain podcasts you're like i understand that they're boys i i i, I maybe they're boys i don't know i i, I guess they're boys but it might be, be beneficial for the viewer to have a little bit of a breakdown as to why they had certain tracks in the album you know why did he include this track you know why did this flow into that track you know what was the overall what were you trying to get at when you said this lyric at this in this time or in this pocket or you know how did you experiment 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 with your flow on that track compared to the other tracks that you had you know what made that track stand out with this type of producer instead of your actual producer that produces all your other tracks you know i think that is those are the questions that I would love to see in, in a rap podcast. And generally speaking, that's very hard to come by. In a lot of ways, it's mostly just a hang or a get-together where it's just old friends chopping it up or friends that never really talk to one another another face-to-face -face have the ability to do that. And I think in a lot of ways that that actually greatly hurts um, the product. So, I mean, all of this is to, is to say, I think Tyler's right in this. And, uh, yeah, if anything, this just goes to show you that uh, hip-hop needs to have more discussions in regards to music and not just rely on, you know, shocky, shock, shocky headlines to get uh, attention or traction, you know, or, or, you know, stories that were clearly made up just for the sake of saying it on a podcast, you know. But anyways, those are my thoughts on it. Leave your thoughts down below in regards to Tyler the Creator's overall thoughts on hot ones and sneaker shopping it's it's funny he that he offered clarification on hot ones and not sneaker shopping which shows you the absolute disdain that he has for sneaker shopping uh, maybe it's because nobody really buys sneakers on on sneaker shopping maybe that's the reason why i don't know um but i would too honestly if i was in his position right if i'm a guy who's made you know countless sneakers um and none of them really gets a, a day in the light on sneaker shopping then obviously i too would uh, get mad as well and by the way, I don't think sneaker shopping is like, I mean, it's not the apex of info and insightful questions. It just isn't. It's sneakers. Like, let's be honest here. It's sneakers. It's made in a factory. 
by the same children that made the Starburys or the Shacks from Payless. Like, well, stop it, you know. Anyways, let's get into our last, or let's get into our wiki pick, shall we? So each and every week I recommend a book, a piece of art, a film, an album, sometimes a special that I really enjoy that I think you guys will enjoy as well. This week, I will be talking about Danny Brown's new album, Quaranta. Um, Friday was a very interesting time for albums releasing. Uh, you had Drake's Scary Hours edition of his last album, For All the Dogs, uh, released on that day. You had Andre 3000's flu album drop. I don't want to call it a flute album per se. Uh, it's not really a flute album, um, but his avant-garde album that dropped. I didn't get a chance to listen to it, so I, I don't really have an opinion on that. But I did listen to Danny Brown's Quaranta, and overall, I really, really do enjoy this album. Uh, it's not my favorite album from Danny Brown. I still prefer Atrocity Exhibition. And I still think XXX is also a really good album as well. Uh, but still a, a solid album nonetheless. Uh, I think... In a lot of ways, this was his most personal album. Because you saw a more mature Danny Brown. This is not the same Danny Brown that has a childlike flow to his songs like he did on Atrocity Exhibition. Um, if anything, this is him at his most subdued, at his most somber. And I think it throughout this entire album, starting with Quaranta, it really sets the mood for that album. The title track Quaranta sets the mood for the album. The, the guitars are amazing. And the way that it transitions into other songs like Ain't My Concern, awesome. His flow on Ain't My Concern is great. Uh, Hanami, I think I think that's what it's called, had a great jazz section, jazz section in, in, that, so in, that, in that song. Uh, again, this is very somber and very subdued. This is not Danny Brown at his joyous energetic childlike self it is danny brown at his most introspective at his most at his most um emotional state and you have to be in the right headspace to listen to this album i don't think this is an album that you just put on for background noise and just continue on with your day this is an album that you got to really sit with uh and really sort of process because not only is this Danny Brown at his most subdued and is at his most introspective, but I think in a lot of ways this is Danny Brown at his most literal. There is no need to go on genius and decode the lyrics or, you know, decode the lyrics on your own and try and see what he's trying to say. This is Danny Brown at his most literal. Um, you know, if you listen to uh, Hanami, I think that is also the... the that's, this is also the same track that I was referring to. You know, he's very defeated, very nihilistic. Um, talks about the issues with dealing with writer's block, not finding rap as a hobby anymore, just finding as a job. You know, all of these things that successful rappers go through, he is just the most literal at. And yeah, I, I think this is a, a really great album. I will say that this, this is a great album. Uh, 11 tracks, 34 minutes long. Um, in a lot of ways, when you listen to this album, there are a lot of similarities between this album and Kanye's Ye. I think in a lot of ways that this album is very similar to Ye. I don't think that this has as much replay power as, say, Kanye's Ye. I still love Kanye's album Ye so much. I think it's, honestly, this is going to be very far-fetched and controversial. It's top three Kanye albums, in my opinion. Find me on that. I don't care. It's top three, in my personal opinion. Um, but yes, this is a great album. Definitely go check it out. Um, again, this is not for the faint of heart, you know, as always with Danny Brown albums. Uh, so definitely go check it out, but be in the right headspace to listen to it. It's not an album that you can just turn on in the car and be like, yeah, let's turn on this album. No, it's like, this is an album where it's appointment. It's an appointment television viewing where you want, you want, you listen to it at a specific time because you realize, okay, I need to listen to this album, you know? Certain albums are like that, you know. I feel like the same thing with Earl Sweatshirt. Like with Earl Sweatshirt, there are times where I listen to Earl Sweatshirt. And I'm like, oh no, I have to be in the right headspace to listen to this album. I can't just turn this on at any moment or time and be like, yeah, I, I got to bump to this. Like, no, I have to be in the right headspace to listen to Earl Sweatshirt, you know. But anyways, uh, those are my thoughts on the album. Uh, and guys, I think that's it for the uh, podcast for you guys today. So that's my uh, weekly pick for you guys for today. Uh, Danny Brown's Coranta. 
And that's it for the podcast for today. So, guys, thanks so much for watching. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you guys like, subscribe, and click the bell icon for notifications down below. Make sure you follow me on my podcast channel, my podcast clips channel, my stand-up channel. Make sure you follow me on my X, my Instagram, and my TikTok. All the links are down in the description box below. Um, if rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, give me a five-star review on Apple Podcast and Spotify. It's sitting at 2.3 on Spotify. It can be higher. I can assure you it can be higher. Um, if you have any questions or comments, uh, leave them down, down below. I'll do my best to respond to each and every one of them. And last but not least, um, spread it through your text chains and through your group threads to get it uh, through to get it spreading through word of mouth and to get more and more people involved and invest in this podcast. That was a great sight to see. Um, I will probably be taking next podcast off, so don't expect a Thursday podcast because obviously that time should be better spent with your family. And with those that you truly love and enjoy being around, not with me. Uh, so, yeah, I'll take Wednesday off because obviously there's no tennis news. And I don't want to talk about Izzy Pally for another podcast. I just don't. So I'll see you guys on Monday. Enjoy your holiday. Enjoy your weekend. Avoid the bookings. And I'll see you guys on Tuesday. All right, guys. Peace. See you all.